and welcome to the February 2022 episode of The Seagull. The Seagull is the place to stay up to date on everything you need to know about the 102nd Intelligence Wing at Otis Air National Guard Base, right here from beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I'm Tim Sandlin from Public Affairs, and I will get you up to speed on what's going on here at the Wing. February and winter are in full swing. For the record, do you know the number to call to check on the base operational status during weather events? It's 508-968-4433. The other important way for the base to contact you with status updates is to ensure your contact information is updated on ad hoc. It is important to make sure the system has your information documented accurately. It is the most rapid way of keeping you informed on important status updates in the most timely way possible. Okay, so enough of that for now. Let's get on with what's going on at the wing. In this month's Seagull, we've got five questions with Jill Garvin, our Director of Psychological Health. We cover several areas, such as concerns airmen have with seeking psychological help, providing support to friends, finding the right therapist, and more. In our feature interview, we speak to Colonel and Dr. Melinda Sutton, Chief of Aerospace Medicine at the 102nd Intelligence Wing, about her military story. We also have a segment about the Tuskegee Airmen that you won't want to miss. After all of that, we get a quick teaser from this month's Chevron's podcast. But first, in this month's command message, Chief Chris Hurl, Command Chief of the 102nd Intelligence Wing, covers one of the key points from the Wing Goals, establishing the 102nd as a unit of choice. Chief Hurl explains what this phrase means to him. Hello, 102nd Intelligence Wing. I'm Command Chief Master Sergeant Christopher Hurl, and it's my privilege to present this month's command message. By now, most of you should have had the chance to read and digest the wing goals established for 2022. Key among them is the idea that the 102nd establishes itself as a unit of choice. I would like to take some time today and discuss what being a unit of choice means to me. Before I talk about where we want to go, I'd like to take some time and discuss a key leader from the not-too-distant past. As many of you may have heard, Command Chief Retired Chief Master Sergeant Roy Piver, the third Command Chief ever at the 102nd, recently passed away after a struggle with cancer. Chief Piver was the first leader that I ever experienced when I joined the Air National Guard and the 102nd. His method of calm, kind, and considerate leadership while ensuring the mission was accomplished is a model that many successful leaders of the 102nd have followed with great success. His legacy lives on today in the excellence that you see all around you in the wing. If you'd like to gain some insights into the way Chief Piver thought, led, and encouraged others to lead, please take the time to read his paper entitled The Words of Wisdom. The paper stresses key aspects of leadership that are timeless. If you haven't read it, I recently sent it out in an all-staff email, and I've uploaded it to my 102nd Intelligence Wing Command Chief Teams page. So how do we honor Chief Piver's legacy as we establish ourselves as a unit of choice? Well, first we have to define what we mean by unit of choice. For me, it means several things at different levels. At the national level, to be a unit of choice means that warfighters, combatant commanders, and external agencies ask for us by name. That they want to work with 102nd because we're simply the best. We're relevant, well-trained, well-equipped, and our airmen kick butt. To accomplish that, we have to invest in our airmen so that they are empowered to make the decisions 
adapt to challenges, and fight at the lowest levels. This wing has smart, dedicated airmen. They're innovative and creative. As a wing, we need to embrace a mindset of accelerate, change, or lose, and encourage our airmen to lead from the lowest levels. When you consider being a unit of choice at the local level, I envision our wing as a family. A family that respects, appreciates, and looks out for one another. We should welcome those that choose to join our wing with open arms and provide them a high standard of care as they assimilate. We must remember that our early actions with these airmen will shape their vision of the military and especially the 102nd. Let's work hard to make sure that their excitement to serve their country carries through and turns into a continued excitement to be a part of the 102nd. On the same note, we should show the same high level of care for those that are already a part of our family. Ideally, wing airmen would perpetually consider the 102nd to be their personal unit of choice. For that to happen, they need to feel safe and secure in their work centers. Airmen need to feel that they are appreciated and that their work matters. Supervisors must provide regular feedback, encouragement, reward, and be willing to have those difficult conversations when a course correction is needed. We should always celebrate diversity at every turn for it's our diversity of thoughts, experiences, and worldviews that make us so strong. At all times, we must remember that the enemy is out there, not in here. We need to compete with near-peer threats like China and Russia, and that doesn't leave any room in the wing for us to be fighting amongst ourselves. At one point or another, we all traded in our civilian clothes for the uniforms we wear today. Let's respect and cheer for our brothers and sisters in arms for making that choice. If you made it this far into this talk, thank you. I appreciate you for all being part of the 102nd Intelligence Wing. It's through your contributions and sacrifices that legacies like Chief Pivers live on. When we are gone, it'll be the actions that we take this day and the others like it that future airmen will build on our successes. I'm so happy to have a turn to be able to serve as your command chief. I encourage you all to make the most of your time in the Air National Guard. Thank you and have a great day. Hello and welcome to another episode of Five Questions, where we invite subject matter experts to come in and provide timely information about topics relevant to our airmen's careers, lives, as well as the wing's mission. This month, we have Ms. Jill Garvin, the Director of Psychological Health for the 102nd Intelligence Wing. Thanks for coming in uh, to the program, and are you ready for five questions, Jill? I am ready for my five. Thanks for having me. Sure. So question number one. I'm sure this is uh, at or near the top of concerns for many airmen. Does speaking to the DPH or any counselor have a negative effect on an individual's security clearance? Absolutely not, and there have been some changes, which I won't get into the details. You can look it up or ask me, but changes to the um, SF-86, asking if you have received mental health treatment, which you can usually answer no to, even if you come and see the DPH or a therapist. It is very pro-mental health, and I want to remind people that it is, a, is a, it is extremely rare for someone to lose a clearance because they have a psychological issue. Great. Uh, question number two. COVID has been a challenge for everyone. 
We're now heading into the third year of the pandemic, and it's likely had an effect on our relationships, personal or otherwise. What advice do you have in keeping your important relationships intact? Yeah, so since COVID, I've definitely had an increase in people that have been coming to see me because they're having relationship challenges. And if you're having challenges, we, our office, our resiliency office, we have a lot of good resources. I would suggest the Gottman Institute. They also have an app for your phone that can help strengthen relationships. The Five Love Languages, a great podcast is Esther Perel. She's a psychologist that specializes in relationships. And Military One Source has uh, marital coaching, so you can also utilize that service. But I have had a lot of people coming in to see me because of breakups and because of um, they're going through a divorce, which is very, very stressful. If you ever look at a list of the most stressful things you can ever go through, that's divorce or breakup. And there are a lot of um, divorce care groups. You can check with your with your church for that. There's a lot of support groups on Facebook. There's one for fathers on, on Facebook as well. Of course, there's regular therapy. And we also have a lot of people here at the 102nd that have gone through divorces in the past, and they felt like it was something they were never going to get through, but now they're on the other side of it, and things are very different for them. And they're also willing to talk to other wingmen or other people that are going through divorces. Um, but what I really encourage is connecting with other people that are going through it or that have been through it, um, that's probably the more supportive thing that you can do for yourself in addition to talking to somebody. And well, I'm happy, happy to listen uh, to anyone that is struggling with this right now. Sure. sounds like the most important thing to do is to continue to communicate. Yes. And I think with COVID, you know, a lot of people were sort of stuck inside together and some people grew closer in the relationships, and some people, if there were already some issues, uh, grew apart. And sometimes it's hard to, to put the pieces back together, and that's why it is really important to find um, a licensed marriage and family therapist, for example, that specializes in relationships and, and, um, and marriages. So uh, I, I would also encourage you to look at... Uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Right, right. Question number three, uh, what does it mean to be a good wingman? If a friend or a family member has been struggling, how do we recognize their struggle and how should we approach it? I think we have a lot of uh, great examples here at the 102nd around how to be a good wingman. I see it all the time because I have people that call me or that walk in with somebody or a first sergeant that reaches out and they're trying to get support for a wingman. And so we always use that ACE concept, the ask, care, and escort. It doesn't mean you have to be friends with someone or spend a lot of time with someone that you don't know that well. But if you're noticing some changes with someone, you know they're going through a divorce or maybe they're having some financial problems or they have a sick child or they're having some, some work-related issues, you can still reach out in a way that feels genuine to you. And that might be 
asking that person how you can support them, sending them a text, uh, sometimes with a first sergeant, maybe a supervisor. Sometimes we'll do a group check, a group um, text to support a member uh, if that's what they would like and that's supportive to them. So really just making sure that you do ask them if they're okay and if you feel like someone isn't okay and they need more support, then you don't want to leave that person alone. You can escort them into my office. Uh, if someone, of course, is in imminent danger, meaning that they have a plan to harden themselves or someone else, you always want to take them to the emergency room. But if someone's just really struggling and you can bring them into my office, I can definitely make sure that I get them to the right place and I do some safety planning. Um, but just, yeah, you always want to ask. People will also ask me in suicide prevention trainings, is it okay to ask someone or how do you ask someone if they're suicidal? Because it's uncomfortable. But really just directly asking someone, do you have a plan to hurt yourself? Are you feeling suicidal? Just directly asking them is the most helpful thing that you can do because some people, some people worry that by asking that it might trigger somebody. But often if someone's in that state, they want to be asked and it's perfectly okay to directly ask them. Sure, sure. Good advice. Uh, question number four. If you are in need, how do you find a good therapist? And if you are no, not matching with the one that you have, is it okay to change midstream? Finding a therapist. There are a couple places that I always look if someone is looking for therapy. I look on Psychology Today. There's another one called um, therapyden.com. And you can put in your zip code. And then you can filter it. So if you have TRICARE, you can filter that you have TRICARE. And it will pull up. What I like about Psychology Today is it will pull up you know, like a picture of the individual, a uh, little bio, uh, what their training and background is. And often it will tell you if there's a wait list or if they're not accepting new clients. Um, that's a, a great place to start. If you have TRICARE, you do have to get a referral from your PCP. Uh, if you find a therapist, great, that takes TRICARE, that the, your doctor just has to put in a referral there. One of the ways that the DPH can help with this is that when you are stressed or you're feeling depressed or you're having a lot of anxiety and you want to reach out and get help, it is really hard to get on Psychology Today or your insurance website and start looking for therapy, therapists. It's, it, it's super overwhelming. It's not overwhelming for me. So if you call me and say, I need a therapist, I, I don't, it's too overwhelming to look or to make the phone calls. I can do that for you. That's one of the benefits of having me here. So I really encourage people to ask me to help them. I'm happy to make those calls. If that's a barrier for them, if it's a barrier, help you can help them with that. Yes. You can jump the hurdle for them. And the other thing yeah. I want to mention is that yeah. I work very closely with the vet center. We've got one here in Hyannis and, and more in the state of Massachusetts. Um, Congress has extended their eligibility in terms of seeing the guard. Mm -hmm. um, so 
usually you are probably eligible to go to the vet center. You don't have to deal with TRICARE. You call them on the phone. It takes them about five minutes to get your basic information. They have a therapist call you back, and they set you up in services, and they also have groups. So that's another really great resource that we have for the garden that's been um, expanded in terms of eligibility. And then I think your other question was about switching. If, if you don't uh, mesh with the with the therapist, yeah, so kind of switch. I've definitely had people come in my office and and share maybe a conversation or just overall how it's going with their therapist. And sometimes I will say, hmm, that doesn't sound really helpful. What your therapist is, is saying, or if it's making you feel worse and not better, then maybe it's time for a change. All of us are very different. You know, some people connect with me and some people don't. They'd rather not come to the DPH or they want to talk to a different person. And as a licensed clinician, I want what's best for that person. So if you're seeing a therapist and it's not a good match, remember that it's for you and Usually therapists are okay with that. If you need to make a switch, make a switch if, if something doesn't feel right. Or again, it's making you feel worse and not better. It doesn't mean that therapy isn't challenging and it isn't going to bring up some difficult things. Sometimes you have to work through that. But if you feel like there's some red flags or your therapist just isn't engaging or really listening to you and you don't feel heard, I encourage you to speak up about that. But it's also... It's also okay to switch. Oh, good. And the fifth and final question. Um, what are some strategies for dealing with an anxiety and calming your nervous system? You know, everybody has their days. What's out there to help us smooth some of the wrinkles out of our daily lives? Well, with anxiety, our, our nervous system is always involved. Um, anytime that we can learn some techniques, Techniques like breathing, um, mantras, certain physical activities. You know, it helps our parasympathetic nervous system, which controls like our, our, our rested state. And it helps deactivate the um, sympathetic uh, nervous system, which involves our, our flight or fight response. So doing things like I always suggest... One, box breathing. So if you picture inhaling for four, pausing for four, exhaling for four, pausing for four, and doing that for a couple of minutes, it can help activate that parasympathetic uh, system or energy. Uh, box breathing or inhaling for four and doing a slower exhale can calm your nervous system down. Uh, there's some great apps. I always suggest COVID Coach because it's got a lot of breathing exercises and exercises in there for anxiety, very simple ones. There are some that are only like three minutes long or five minutes long. Affirmations can be really helpful. Saying things to yourself like, I'm in control. This is only temporary. I've made it through hard things before. I can make it through this. I can take it one step at a time, sometimes one hour at a time. So really watching some of the thoughts that you say to yourself, uh, doing things that, that, again, are calming to your nervous system. Everybody has anxiety. 
some are worse than others, uh, but almost everybody that comes in to see me, they're having some kind of anxiety. And so sometimes I will do breathing exercises with them or I will suggest some. I have a, a whole list of, of different exercises that you can do that will help with that. Um, one thing I want to mention is that there are three things that can make anxiety worse, and that's irregular sleep. So I always ask people how their sleep is, and often our sleep can be irregular. So sleep makes anxiety worse. If we overuse um, stimulants, uh, caffeine, energy drinks, that will definitely make your anxiety worse. And even simple things like dehydration, not drinking mm -hmm. enough water. So sometimes if... I'm talking about anxiety to somebody. I will try to get them to keep, keep it really simple. Do the box breathing. Make sure you're drinking water. Are you getting rest? You know, getting outside or getting some sunlight for a few minutes. Like really keeping things simple so you can start to learn how to, how to calm your nervous system down. And, of course, if you can come in and talk about it, I think your, our anxiety gets worse if we kind of stay in our head yep. and don't Keep it in. kind of brain dump or get it out with somebody. So a lot of times I can see someone come in with anxiety that's on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst. They feel like they're having a panic attack or a heart attack. But after they just kind of get everything out off their chest and brain dump, they're like at a four or five and they feel completely relieved because they've shared it with somebody. So my office is a great place to do that. And if someone isn't comfortable coming to see the DPH, I will always find someone for you to talk to. Wow. And that seems like uh, a running theme through, through all of these is keeping the communications open. Absolutely. Continuing to talk to, to friends, family, wingmen, um, DPH, yeah. to whoever you can talk to, keep talking keep talking. And there's a lot of resources for the military and for the Air National Guard. And if you're not aware of them, again, please call my office because I'm happy. I even have people that will call like for their friends or family members. I'm just happy to give you resources. Great. Great. Um, all right. Well, that was five questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Is there anything that you'd like to ensure the Airmen of the Wing are aware of? Uh, one thing I would add when, when, you asked about finding a therapist or a counselor. If you're somebody that struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder or just post-traumatic stress, for example, it's also important to find a therapist that is trauma-informed mm -hmm. and that is sensitive to uh, military culture and also trauma-related symptoms. So that's another really good question to ask if you're if you are looking for for a therapist, is, is kind of finding out if, and if you're not sure what that means, again, please reach out to me and I can explain what, what trauma-informed means. Great. And also there are a lot of great books and podcasts that I can suggest to that help address all these questions that you've asked. Awesome. Thanks, Jill. Um, what's the best way to get in touch with your office? How can Airmen reach out? You can email me. I'm in the global. And you're also welcome to call me on my cell phone, which is the best way to get in touch with me. And I can get my email that way as well. And that is 508-237-6652. 508-237-6652. Awesome. 
Thanks again for coming in and answering five questions. Thank you. I had the pleasure of speaking to Colonel and Dr. Melinda Sutton, Chief of Aerospace Medicine for the 102nd Intelligence Wing, about her military story. As luck would have it, February 3rd, the day we recorded this interview, also happens to be National Women Physicians Day. This day marks the birthday of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to receive a medical degree in the United States in 1849. Have a listen to Dr. Sutton as she tells us how she has gotten to this stage of her career. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where does your story begin? My story begins in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, my parents, high school sweethearts, and I'm their first child. So um, it starts there. My father joined the military, joined the Marine Corps, and we started traveling. So we went from there to Albany, Georgia, then to Hawaii. And after Hawaii, my mom had seen enough water, so she said, the next stage next place I'm staying. So that was at Cherry Point, North Carolina. And that's where I finished um, middle school and high school. And then I went to college, North Carolina A&T State University. And I wanted to go to a historically black college because going through school, I started to notice um, in elementary school in Lonsdale, it was primarily African-American. Then we went to Georgia. It was a mixture. Then in Hawaii, it was mostly Asian, Pacific Islander, and that was a great experience. And then when I came back and they start to separate you out in different school tracks um, from the gifted and talented program, there'd be everybody else and then me, which was fine because I always felt a little different, but I think everybody does, you know. But I wanted to be around other people that at least looked like me and had similar cultural upbringing just to satisfy my own curiosity about myself and my heritage. And also because I think historically black colleges and universities don't always get the credit they deserve because there was a time when I didn't have a choice. And it's wonderful that we have choices, but I still think that there's a place for them. Just as there's a place for women's schools, there's a place for all men's schools. I don't have a problem with BMI or any other male school. And I'm of the opinion that just because we can go somewhere it doesn't mean we should. So I think it's all relative, relative to what's going on and what the purpose is and what is your objective, you know. So um, I just wanted to be around other people, and I really appreciated that because it just let me know that just because you have people that are supposed to have similar culture and things doesn't mean you think the same way, doesn't mean you have the same goals. And I needed to see that. And it just reinforced what my parents had always taught me. You treat everyone like you want to be treated, and everyone gets the benefit of the doubt. You don't paint anyone with a broad brush just because they're a part of a certain group or just because they have certain symbols. You know, I don't believe everyone wearing a Confederate flag is against me or is against people of color. I don't believe that. So I, I just take people as they come with the situation and understand that I'm not perfect. So I can't expect everybody else to be perfect every time. So um, 
that's part of my story and where I came from, Knoxville, Tennessee. So I'm part hillbilly. Um, how did you start your career in the military? Who or what inspired uh, your decision to join? My dad in the Marine Corps. And I always thought I would be a Marine. But when I went on base and you could hear them running PT early in the morning and I thought, huh, I'm probably going to get kicked out because they're in the woods, they're in the dirt. And not that I mind that, but uh, me and the drill sergeant might have a problem because I know I can be a little bit of a girly girl. As the, I found out when I went through their survival training, they wanted you to take some dirt and put it on, kind of camouflage. I said, I'm already brown. Um, what do you mean I got to put some dirt on? And I can remember Sergeant House spitting his chew and looking at the ground and looking at my face. And I knew that was body language for put the dirt on your face, lady. So I, I think I made a good choice. So my dad um, was the one that inspired me. And my guidance counselor, Mrs. Markham, is the one that snatched me out of the hallway one day and said, you've already missed the Navy deadline. We're going to sit in this office till we finish the Army and the Air Force ROTC scholarship applications. I've already told your teachers you're not leaving till we get this done. So I owe a lot of credit to her because I thought about it, but she really pushed, and the rest is history. That's great. Uh, starting your career as an industrial engineer, what can you tell me about that field? Awesome. I have to be honest, when I got the scholarship, I had to look it up. And then I noticed that they said, if you don't want to do that one, you can do the other ones. You can do aeronautical, you can do mechanical. And I thought, okay. Options are nice. But when I looked it up, I thought, oh, that's a perfect one for me. You know, because it is the marrying of manpower with industry the ergonomic design of workstations, improving efficiency, improving quality. Oh, I can do that. I like that. That appeals to me. And it has all the other aspects of mechanical where I can fix things and uh, move things around in your head and put it on paper with CAD CAM. And I thought, oh, this would be great. I can do this. Um, the only other thing I wish I had done more of was chemical, because I also like to mix things up and come up with concoctions. But you can do that, too, because when you're in a factory, they let you go in and see what's going on. You can be a part of that. So I love that part about it. It just makes people work smarter and not harder with what they have. So that appealed to me greatly. Uh, tell, me, tell me of some of your peers and mentors that uh, initially impacted your early career. Oh, goodness. There, when I think about all the people at North Carolina A&T that poured into me in the engineering department, you know, Dr. Sanjeev, Dr. Bhattacharya Ram, took me a while to get that, my mouth around that name. And that's just putting his, that's a short version of Dr. Ram. It was a long 14 letter, but, you know, all of those folks were very kind and very, uh, very firm. They didn't let me get away with doing just enough. They would call you back in the office and say, you can do better, you're gonna do this over. And I appreciate them for that. And my first commander, uh, Colonel Baumgartle, and my second commander, Colonel McPherson. Uh, very open, very understanding. Even when I was, wasn't sure what would be the next step, 
as a second lieutenant coming on board when I expressed concerns because my first job was running the computer system for CE in addition to the other engineering things. And I thought, okay, you know who you got running your system? But you, you learn, you adapt and you overcome. And that was um, a great mentorship moment. You know, Mr. Butters, who was my first supervisor, you know, patiently working with me on the problem solving, project management, getting things done, staying on time, and communicating. So I think of all those folks. Uh, did you have plans from the beginning to stay in the military and make it a career? I did. Initially, when I, uh, when I started out with ROTC scholarship, I did think, you know, this is something that I could do for 20 years. It's a great way of life. Um, I also had in the back of my mind, Melinda, you also thought about medicine. And I thought, after I got the Army scholarship for medicine, and then I thought, Marine Corps, Army, if I couldn't do the Marines, then I'm not going to do the Army probably for similar reasons, uh, their culture and things. I'd, and then I just thought, as a woman, I would do better in the Air Force. So going back to the Army scholarship, if I had a problem with who was paying for it, then maybe I didn't really want to do that bad enough. So engineering appealed, and I went that route. And I thought, this is something I could do for the rest of my life. Well, as you alluded to, uh, after several years in the engineering field, you made a significant career pivot into medicine. Uh, what was that decision like? It was like flipping a switch. I went on a deployment to Team Spirit in Korea. We landed at Osan. We went out to Yoju, which was a peanut field that we had to convert into a, a base, a camp, put down runway, everything you would do for a tent city, a deployment. And I ended up spending most of the time with the flight surgeon. And that's when I said, okay, you, it's time for you to be honest with yourself. You like this, but you really, you really love medicine. So it's time to start thinking about a transition because it just really captured me going through doing the site survey for where the latrine was as opposed to the, the showers and the dining facility. I mean, it all crossed over with the engineering, but I just really loved all of the, the public health stuff, you know, making sure that the bugs were gone, making sure that we had the right water, using the reverse osmosis water purification unit and the medical implications of that if we had to. So that's when I really realized, okay, in your heart of hearts, you need to, you need to change, change over to medicine. Did your previous military experience prepare you for the challenges of medical school? It did in many ways, um, except the, the emotional component. It did help because one of the things I realized with industrial engineering is that the better you are, the better likelihood that somebody may lose their current job. Because if you make things more efficient, you're not going to need as many people to do the same work. So I had to reframe it and say, you're creating other opportunities for people. Um, and that was an emotional thing, too. Because what if somebody has trained to be on this line doing this thing all their life? Now they have to change their whole mindset. 
when you go to medicine, it's very emotional to tell people that they have a condition that's going to change the rest of your life. When you tell somebody they're a diabetic, oh, many things come to their mind. Their diet is going to change, uh, medications they have to take, certain, you know, just a mindset that this is going to affect the rest of my life, my level of function, and I have a choice. Either I get with the program and follow the recommendations or adjust them to fit my lifestyle and me, and many diabetics have done a great job with that. Or I don't, and I deal with the consequences. And, you know, when you tell somebody you have to put them through a painful procedure, you know, all of that. So it was a segue, and it didn't quite prepare me for that, but for everything else with the hard work trying to get organized and how you learn things and to quickly adapt, because you only have a short period of time with a class to, to get the learning style right and, and to get it. Do you need flashcards for this class? Do you need to just keep looking at microscope slides for histology? Whatever it is, you must adjust quickly, and engineering definitely taught me that because everything's not in a book, and you got to figure it out. So yes, it did. So um, shifting gears a little bit, if you had to choose a moment or a situation that was your fondest memory or proudest moment, what would it be? The deployments, um, having a successful deployment, um, being at Team Spirit and having all of the teams come together. And I say that was a, a proud moment for me because when they sent the CE team over, it was all guys, me, and a plumber. So it was just great that we could get things done. And me being a female, the plumber being a female, didn't stop anything. It, nothing came to a screeching halt. They didn't have to make a special bathroom for me. They didn't have to make a special tent or anything. And to be honest with you, us all in the same tent was not a problem because we had so much gear on. I used every bit of gear they issued me. So um, the camaraderie, that, that was, I was proud of that. And the other deployment was when I went for uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom that turned to Enduring Freedom and going over as a flight surgeon because I got to see the camp from a different perspective, coming in and seeing all the key points that as a civil engineering officer, what we did in the layout and being able to speak intelligently about the runway and say, you know, I think we need to move that P4 matting. Something that's right. How do you know about that? Well, let me tell you. You know, so that was nice to see it from that perspective and to develop a camaraderie with my flying crew, um, the 105th Airlift Squadron at the time, because pilots are a tough group to get next to. Um, they don't let you in. So those are my proud moments: the deployments and how everything came together and we were doing military things. We were out in the field. So that, those are my proudest moments that I can think of right now. Uh, what advice would you have for airmen who are considering a major change in their careers? Research what that means. Uh, know what you're getting yourself into. Understand that it can be painful, uh, but my situation was facilitated by reduction in forces. It was like perfect timing. Whereas I was able to leave early, I was able to get the GI Bill and use it to pay for my pre-med prerequisites. Um, 
without that, it would have been that much more difficult. So research what it's going to take to do that. I mean, down to how are you going to support yourself? And be honest with yourself. Are you willing to tough it out? Because there's, it's going to be difficult. And there's, you're going to have naysayers. You know, I had people say, do you know how long it's going to take? Do you know how much money that's going to cost? And you know how old you're going to be? I was like, well, no, I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'll find out. Uh, I don't know how much money it's going to cost. I'll find that out too. But I know one thing, God willing, I'm going to be several years older and doing what I really in my heart want to do. Or I'll be five years older saying woulda, coulda, shoulda. And I'd rather... I'd rather go out fighting. I'd rather go down swinging and give it a go instead of wondering. So count the cost like it says in the Bible and be sure that you're ready to go for it. Because there's going to be times when you might have nobody supporting you, nobody believing in you. And be prepared to be broke sometimes. I started medical school with $1 in my pocket. And you find a way. God makes a way. Somebody showed up with a gift card or lunch or a meal, and I stayed with friends, and I had a gas card to put gas in the car. You kind of touched on this a little bit. There's challenges. Um, if you had to choose something that you would have done differently that had a significant impact, what would it be? Mm. The only thing I can think of that I would have done differently was I would have explored flying more. When I got to North Carolina A&T, I didn't know that you had to take an AFOQT to keep your scholarship. If I'd known that, I might have studied for the test. And it was on a Saturday, and I woke up late. I ran to the site with, a, with two pencils in my hand, and I just took the test. I think my lowest score was the pilot score. And they were like, do you want to think about it? I said, I don't love flying as much as some of the other people that I'd seen that went that route. And I felt like I didn't want to take up a spot for somebody where that was their end all be all. They eat, sleep, breathe it. And I felt like they would just hate me because I'd be like, okay, well, we're done flying for the day. I'm going to go get a mani-pedi. Um, not the thing to say. I had enough situational awareness to know you don't say that. Um, but I think I would have explored getting a flying flying license, a pilot license. I always read about it, and I had friends who were doing it, and they would take me up. But I would have explored that. And who knows? I might have joined the Guard as a pilot, and that might have changed the trajectory of things. But I'm fine with the way it went. I just know that it might have changed whether the timing of becoming a flight surgeon and things like that. I think it would have eventually happened. But um, if I could have done anything differently, I would have explored flying more. And um, that's about it. I think they're pretty good. And if I'd known I was going to meet my husband on deployment, I might have pushed to deploy sooner. But, you know, timing, God's timing is best. So I I'm good with that. Yeah. So you were recently recognized as the National Guard BEYA Stars and Stripes or Stripes and Stars Award winner for 2022. What is the significance of that honor for you? It's huge. Stars and Stripes has been a part of my career from the very beginning. And 
reading that paper because I remember hearing about it in movies. And then when I came on active duty and saw it, I said, oh, it does exist. It wasn't just something somebody made up. And then they were so gracious to me to help me with Black History Month campaigns. I did a Did You Know campaign. They helped me. They helped publicize, I think, a play that I did. So I thought to come back and be recognized by them for this, I was just honored and thrilled. And not that you want to shout from the rooftops that you're an engineer, but I'm just so glad that I was able to graduate with the degree and make use of it. It's just such a thrill to have somebody pull that back from the cockles of my past and, and dust it off and say, hey, you did something here. So it's just spectacular. I'm just, I'm still so excited. I still remember the phone call, you know, when they said, hey, you won? So, and I'm also appreciative that they're honoring um, black engineers because you still have people today who don't believe there are any. I mean, I don't know, I'm just gonna say this for my active duty. I remember Airman, I won't say his name, and this is when the Cosby show was out and he was just talking one day and he said, who would believe that? That can't possibly happen. A black doctor and a black lawyer being married. And I said, you mean kind of like a black engineer? He said, yeah. And then he was like, I said, hello. So it's just nice to get that affirmation. And uh, I really appreciate them for highlighting this because you never know what it's going to mean to someone else who sees it who may have had blinders on, they're just trying to make it through life, and, and then they look like, huh, maybe, maybe I can do something different. Well, leading right into the last question I've got for you, um, one of the purposes of the Stars and Stripes Award is to influence uh, youth toward science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM. What would you say to young students who are beginning to look forward to their own futures and all they can achieve? I would say, use your imagination. Anything is possible. And if you don't see what you believe you want to do among what's available, make a new path. Go for it. Um, don't, let, don't let your doubt and frustrations with what you've tried hold you back. And I just think that this is so key that the Bayer Award is during Black History Month because it coincides with so many other recognitions. Like today is National Women's Physicians Day. So that just adds that much more to it for me. And I just say go for it. You know, really, don't let past failures in school, if you didn't do well in math in junior high, it's a combination of factors at that time. Maybe you were not receptive. Maybe it was a teaching style. Maybe you didn't know how you learned. So give yourself another chance. You can, you can remediate and you can re- shore up your foundation and go on from there. Don't let a bad experience in physical science class keep you out or chemistry. So you blew up a few things in the lab. Okay, now you know what not to do. Build on that. Don't bury your dreams. Go for it. You got the rest of your life and nobody, I don't want to see anybody on the porch in the rocking chair gumming their applesauce. Hopefully you had some good oral hygiene. But um, 
saying, well, I could have been a contender. I could have invented this. I could have done that. No, go for it. Give it a go. So don't hold yourself back. There's enough stuff in life. There's enough nasty people um, who are bitter for whatever reason. I don't know what happened to them, but there's enough of that, enough unintended consequences to hold you back without you holding yourself back. So go for it. You'd be surprised how many people are out there to help you. Because there were people all along the key points that helped me. Scholarship money, summer projects, or telling me, you don't need that class, you need this class. Saved me a lot of time and effort. So you will be surprised what rises up to meet you to help you along your way. And if I might quote one of my favorite actors, Heath Ledger from A Knight's Tale, You Can Change Your Stars. I love that song from that movie, Pete Barnum and Bailey. It's a circus movie. It said, if I could just rewrite the stars. I know it's a love story, but you can. You really can. And that's so funny that you say stars. Please pray for some stars for me. <laughs> that would be awesome. I'm sure they're on their way, ma'am. I'm praying they will align. Thank you very much. You're an inspiration to the airmen in this wing. I'm honored. I'm inspired by the wing. They took a chance on an unknown from outside the state, because I know you New Englanders are territorial, but that, that's for a good reason. <laughs> Just the hard scrabble way that you guys had to come up with this weather, the Plymouth. I had newfound respect for the pilgrims after I came up here in the winter. I was like, oh, Lord Jesus. And, and this woods, Ichabod Crane Dark. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But well, thank you. Well, can't take credit for Ichabod Crane. He's New York. Oh, <laughs> but it's still dark. <laughs> Again, thank you and congratulations on your, on your award. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the privilege of sharing some things about myself. So thank you. Thank you. We'd like to thank the 56th Fighter Wing at Luke Air Force Base, New Mexico, for capturing interviews with Ben Bruce, a Tuskegee historian, and Colonel Richard Tolliver, retired a second-generation Tuskegee Airman. I think what the Tuskegee Airman story does to the Air Force is highlight the diversity and the value of diversity and also highlights the importance of working as a team. It's a rich story of history, and how we can finally get it right. And I think the Air Force is still a better and stronger Air Force because of our diversity. This is not just black history, this is American history. I think uh, the Air Force, Air Force would still be the Air Force had it not been for the Tuskegee experience. Uh, remembering that the Department of Defense, then called the Department of War, has also been a social experiment. We've been the first to break the color barrier. We've been the first to provide quality and equity to um, uh, females. We were first to cross the transgender line. So we've always been on the advanced edge. It took us 10 years to figure out that uh, Discrimination and segregation was not something that was very meaningful in the Department of Defense or in the Department of War at the time. Uh, it took the 
the United States of America another 20 years after we desegregated the United States Air Force and the Department of Defense for them to desegregate the United States itself. So we've always been on the cutting edge. I think the significance of it is that if you were to take an American history book now and open it up to World War II, you'll still find the stories of the Tuskegee Airmen missing from American history. So we kind of highlight this as a celebration because we want to pay it forward. We want people to understand where we came from, where the contributions were made, and why it's important for us to uh, remember those events because they are historically significant. My name is Richard Tolliver. I am an Air Force Colonel retired. I'm very fortunate to have been introduced to the Tuskegee Airmen now some 60 years ago. I was personally trained by them. I was mentored by them, shaped by them, and ultimately commissioned by them. And so every aspect of the disciplines that were required to build an Air Force were established in the so-called Tuskegee experience. The real impact has to be looked at in the context of the great obstacles that had to be overcome, in spite of the fact that African Americans had been very much a part of this history in our country and had been woven into the fabric of protecting our country since its beginning. So if you were to summarize the great contributions of the Tuskegee Airmen, not only did they fight to win the war overseas, they had a two-pronged war. They had to prove themselves, and they had to fight to overcome still stiff racial opposition and many times racial oppression and the denial to be participants in the main thrust of who they were as a nation of people. But once and for all, African Americans proved, yes, black people can indeed do the most strenuous things that it takes to defend our nation. Our history, then that makes us the history of everybody who was born and is part of America today. We are looking at the mosaic of people all over our globe and our landscape in America. We are made up of those people. So the Tuskegee Airmen history is your history for America and the freedom that we know today. Before we go, here's a bit of a preview of our other podcast, Chevrons. From junior enlisted to senior leaders and those in between, we interview notable individuals to address everyday challenges and hurdles the enlisted force faces. Featured on this episode are Chief Master Sergeant Kevin Myers, ANG Command First Sergeant and 8F000 Functional Manager, as well as Staff Sergeant Michelle Princey from the 102nd ISR Group. These airmen shared their perspectives on mentorship and what qualities and attributes they look for in their mentors and mentees. I was having a lot of challenges, um, specifically when I moved to Pennsylvania, to, to be a productive airman, to come in and add value on drill weekends. And so I, I'll tell you, she and she stood about, you know, five feet, right? If that, maybe, maybe 411. Um, but man, she held me accountable every drill, right? Um, I couldn't, when I got there, I couldn't even remember my password to log in every drill, right? Every 30 days. That's how um, uh, unaware or incompetent I was and, and what my role and um, responsibilities and how I played a part in, in that air refueling wings mission, right? And so even just her holding me accountable, you know, between drills and every time I showed up 
hey Kevin what's your login hey Kevin here's what I need you to do here's what we're going to work on this week and that literally was the catapult for me changing my thought perspective of I'm not just showing up on drill weekend to, to get a paycheck um, and get my GI bill deposited you know in my account every every month that I'm, I'm a full-time student but she literally reshaped my thought process simply by holding me accountable every drill that I showed up that we were going to accomplish something to increase my knowledge to enhance my skills uh, to, to make me a better airman than I than I what I was when I showed up and then it just grew from there right and so now thanks for listening to the seagull one more month of winter has passed and the light of spring is starting to become visible at the end of the frozen tunnel it won't be long before we're back in march and all of that great training it's madness march madness and it's coming soon to an rsd near you while you're waiting patiently for that training to begin take a moment to reach out to one or more of your wingmen make some plans for saturday of the rsd For more news from the 102nd Intelligence Wing, visit our website at www.102iw.ang.af.mil slash links or search for 102iw on any major social media platform.